Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. The, the very heart of God is mission. Is every tribe and tongue and nation that the Abrahamic blessing is a blessing, and we heard this from Chris the first evening, to bless all people. It's not that the church of God has a mission in the world, but the God of mission has a church in the world. As a pastor for the last 20 years, I've had to constantly stir that up in myself. And it's been a growing burden and a growing passion for me to stir it up in the people that God's entrusted to me, including when I have opportunities like this to come and address uh, people far and wide. To be on mission with God. Arthur Burns was, uh, I believe, president of the Federal Reserve in the U.S. through the 70s and part of the 80s. Incredibly influential man, advisor to many presidents. And he was a devout Orthodox Jew. But while he was in Washington, he loved to attend an evangelical fellowship of other people in places of influence. And he loved to just sit and open the word with them and uh, pray with them. And nobody ever quite knew what to do with Arthur because he didn't commit his life to Christ. He remained a faithful, devout, orthodox Jew, but he loved to be part of this. But they would never invite him to pray. One time, the person who normally led the prayer session wasn't there and he appointed somebody else who didn't know Arthur Burns, didn't know his story. And Arthur had attended this prayer meeting for a long time at this point and had never been invited to pray as an Orthodox Jew among evangelicals. They didn't know what to do with that. This person who was leading this session that morning didn't know him and uh, turned to him at the end of it and said, Arthur, would you close our time in prayer? And everyone uh, except Arthur looked a little startled. And Arthur said, I'd love to. He said, let's bow and pray. And he said this, Oh God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray, I pray, that Muslims everywhere would come to know Jesus Christ. And I pray that Buddhists everywhere would come to know Jesus Christ. I pray that atheists everywhere would come to know Jesus Christ and Hindus everywhere would come to know Jesus Christ People are astonished. I mean, they're peeking through their fingers at this. And then he ends this way. And Lord, I pray that Christians everywhere would come to know Jesus Christ. (laughs) I have learned to pray that prayer for me. Of course I know Jesus Christ. I've committed my life many years ago now, bowed the knee, confessed with the tongue. But I come to that story in the book of Acts 18 
where Apollos, we get introduced to Apollos, and Aquila and Priscilla hear him speak, and it says that he is thoroughly educated and grounded in the scriptures, and he teaches Jesus accurately, and he knows he's been taught the way of the Lord. I mean, this guy is astute, he's articulate, he's eloquent, he's theologically grounded, and yet they invite him into his home, their home, and they says, and they taught him the way of God more adequately. As we look a little further into chapter 19, we find out what's probably missing is an ongoing infilling of the Holy Spirit. But don't you, isn't that why we come to these things in part? Why we attend church every Sunday, even though not every Sunday lights us up and catches us on fire? Aren't we wanting to fulfill that prayer that, oh, Jesus, I want to know you? In the inmost places. I want to be more and more conformed to you. I don't want just theological knowledge as foundational and important as good doctrine is. I want this thing to take hold of everything in me. Turn me inside out. I want to be one of the men who turned the world on its head, but I need to be turned on my head by Jesus. Do you ever get overwhelmed, though? Did all the problems, the withering indifference of the world in the West to the gospel, and the cruel hostility in many other places. Does it ever seem overwhelming to you? I just spent the early part of August going through England up into Scotland and I found myself getting a little bit oppressed and depressed by all the cathedrals. These beautiful, glorious monuments to a day when faith was so vibrant, so living across the land and now so many of them mausoleums and museums. And, and people coming to them but not seeking, as far as I can tell, in most cases, the God for whose glory these places were built, but to see the wonderful architecture and hear about the stories. And... Do you ever get overwhelmed by it? How are we going to turn the world on its head when we face in the West such withering indifference and elsewhere we hear such open, blistering oppression and hostility? It's easy to do what Jonah did. And as I said the other day, in some ways Jonah represents the, the low point in missions. Yes, he does finally do what God asks him to do, but when God acts in mercy toward the Ninevites and not in judgment, he's awfully bitter about it. And it takes him a while to get around to doing the mission of God, to joining the God of mission and realize he's part of the church, he's part of the community, the covenant people that God's put here to be his ambassadors to a broken and dying world. He resists that. He not only resists a calling, he resists the God himself who would make such a calling upon his life. Jonah fled the presence of the Lord. And Jonah 1 is about the man uh, fleeing the purposes of God and fleeing the presence of God 
And God having to deal decisively with this man to bring him back to his senses. And we know this story well. This man who goes onto the ship, it's a bunch of pagan sailors. Jonah really is indifferent to their, who they are. He just wants to exploit them for the work they do and get himself as far away from Nineveh and where God's doing, wanting to do his work. He, he wants to go to Tarshish. He wants to go to the edge of the known world. And so he books passage on this thing. He goes down into the hold of the boat to have a deep sleep and just kind of sleep his way through it. Do you ever just want to fall asleep <laughs> and all the problems go away? But Jonah does that. And this huge sea storm comes up. And these, these pagan soldiers work very heroically. They, you know, they strain against the wind and the waves and they start bailing the cargo, jettisoning the cargo to try to lighten the load. And they cast in lots. They're trying to figure out. And finally, Jonah just fesses up, I'm the problem. And reluctantly, they do as he says. They toss him over and uh, the storm goes away. And uh, they survive. And we know what happens to Jonah. He falls into the whale and etc. Now, here's the interesting thing. It seems to me that in some ways, we look at how overwhelming the, the problems of our world are, either the, this withering indifference or this brutal hostility. And there's a temptation, I think, in, at least in my heart, to have the Jonah reaction. Jonah not only flees from what God's trying to do, but he, he's smug and he's judgmental and he's angry and he's bitter and he He's insular. He, he withdraws. He just wants to be left himself. Now, very good theology. We find out when he prays a prayer in chapter 2 that he's got great theology. He just doesn't want to live it out. And I see as I travel, and I see it in my own community, my own faith community, this temptation to meet the hostility or the indifference of the world with hostility or indifference on our part. Do you ever feel that or am I alone? Or is this a Canadian thing? <laughs> I mean, Jesus said, and it was quoted in one of the sessions I was at, if the world hates you, it's because they hated me first. I mean, we, we were warned well ahead of time that we were going to be hated by the world. But Jesus also said, what do you do with those who hate you? And it's so tempting to return in kind. And yet Jesus said, what credit is it, is it to you if you love only those who love you? You know what? You don't need God to do that. Anybody can do that. Pagans can do that. Everyone does that. I tell you, love even your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then you will be sons of your God. People will know that there's something peculiar about you if you live that way. So I find that I'm always having to push myself beyond the Jonah response to a world that sometimes just mostly just doesn't care. And sometimes gets really nasty. 
And to be a son and a child of my heavenly father, I have to stir up a different response. This response of, well, I love the world. Not in the way that John warns, you know, the love of the world and the lust of the eyes and all those sort of things. But will I love this broken, dying world that Jesus Christ loves? And will I love it with his love? Now, the story I really want to take you to today is a story in the book of Acts. And to me, it's kind of the echo of Jonah 1. Jonah 1 is a... Uh, let's call him a Christian. I know he's not, but let's just say a Christian on board a ship that gets caught in a storm and, um, and he's got pagan sailors around him. That, as far as the details of that story, Christian aboard ship in storm, pagan sailors, there's a story in the book of Acts that's almost identical to that story up to this point. It's in Acts 27 and it's Paul, Christian, on ship, in storm with pagan sailors. Uh, it begins, it's pretty much, it's all of Acts 27. Paul is a prisoner of Rome, being sent to Rome by ship to face a trial before Caesar. And uh, they, they head out, and um, the first eight verses or so tell about some journey and, and Paul wins the favor of the centurion in charge of him by the name of Julius. Now that's a little clue. Sometimes we think of Paul as kind of this you know, very stern man who you know, was maybe a little bit hard to get along with. But there's all these clues in Scripture that Paul was a great lover. That Paul had an enormous love for people all people. And so there's a centurion. We have no indication in the story that the centurion gives his life over to Christ. But he really likes Paul. He does a lot throughout the story to to rescue Paul and to save Paul and to help Paul. There's something about Paul where he's just experiencing Christ's love through this man. Anyhow, they set out, and I'm going to begin to pick up the story in verse 9 and read through, uh, I think, to verse 26 and then sum up the rest of it. So I'm reading from Acts 27, verse 9. Much time had been lost because they've been making their slow way across stormy seas. And sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, and this is the one moment where the centurion resists Paul's advice, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. 
The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing they would run aground on the sandbars of um, Citrus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given your, you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground in some island. And then it goes on to say that increasingly as a storm raged, more and more the crew, the centurion, everybody began to turn to Paul. Paul, what do we do? Paul, how do we survive? What, what should we do next? There's some men going to cut the lifeboat and they're going to save themselves. And Paul says, if you let that happen, those men will perish. They have to stay with us. So they just listen to Paul. It's Paul now in charge of the boat. Now, if I had a read Jonah 1, you would have seen some remarkable parallels between this story and the one in Jonah 1. In fact, the speech Paul gives has some resonance to the speech that Jonah gives to the sailors. I am the servant of the Most High God. This is who I am. But really, at that point, this man, this Christian, this Christ follower, this this one who, who knows God, on the ship, in a storm, with pagan sailors, the resemblance between Acts 27 and Jonah ends there because it's a completely different dynamic at work. What we have in Jonah is a man who's on board that ship because he is in disobedience to God. He doesn't want to do the mission of God. And so he's fleeing all of that. And that storm comes up as God teaching Jonah a lesson and getting his attention and all those sort of things. And Jonah makes a speech, but it's very arrogant. If you read it, it's, it's, uh, it, he knows his heritage, he knows his theology, but he really doesn't have, you sense, any love in his heart. And what they find out in Jonah is the only way you can survive a storm at sea is you've got to throw the Christian overboard. Now let me say this. I think the world has an instinct I don't think they explore it. I don't think they unpack it. I don't think they think about it. But I think they have an instinct that if the church that is to be doing the work of God in the world is actually not doing that work, 
that the best way to survive the storm that this world finds itself in, I think their instinct is you should probably get rid of the Christians. Isn't that what we find a lot, especially, well, I think throughout the world, that there's this sort of instinct, especially in the West, where the church has forgotten in many ways what God has put us here for. And there's a sense of what use are they? They know increasingly, the world knows it's in trouble. They're in a storm. But their sense is that we don't need, we're not looking to the church, we're not turning to the church, we're not turning to the gospel, we're not turning to the people who name the name of Christ to find out what we should do. The best thing we can do is get rid of those guys and and maybe the thing would calm down. In the story in Acts 27, there's a man on board who knows Jesus But he's not there because he's disobedient. He's there because he is doing the mission of God. And he does say this to the pagan sailors and those around him. He says, you should have listened to me. I mean, Paul gave advice long before that we shouldn't set sail. This is going to be dangerous. It's going to end disastrously. You should have listened to me back then when I told you. That's a speech that's very tempting to make, isn't it? (laughs) Don't you look at what's going on in our world? Um, Just think about the sexual depravity. Everywhere I turn, on television, how explicit that's become. We don't have television at home, and the place we're staying has a television, and they're girls have been watching some shows and I have to say I'm a bit shocked at what's on mainstream primetime television and and there's a, a part of me that wants to kind of resort to the lecture you should have listened to us we warned you we told you if you did that and stopped doing that that these things would come upon you end up in this kind of a storm. We, we warned you. But Paul doesn't end his speech with, I told you so. Twice he says, no, I want you to take courage. <laughs> These are to non-Christians. These are pagans. I want you to take courage, man. I want you to take something to eat. Because here's what he says. God has purposes in me and in his church and you get to get bought, brought into them. <laughs> Listen exactly what he says. Last night an angel of the Lord, an angel of God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Here's what I think. If the world has an instinct that when the church is not doing its mission, again, they don't analyze this, they don't think about this, it's just a, a sort of a vague instinct, that when the church is not doing its mission, its purposes in God, the best way to survive whatever trouble they're in is to get rid of the Christians. But I think the world has an instinct as well, that when the church is on mission with God, when it's doing those things that God put us here to do, that we're fulfilling that no matter what, come what may. 
the believers that, that you talk about, come what may, you are fulfilling this call of God on your life. That there's a growing instinct in the world that the only way you're going to survive that kind of storm is you've got to turn more and more to these people who have some higher transcendent call on their life. They know something that we don't. God is for the sake of his elect going to bless the rest of them. Uh, Lee Iacocca, I don't know how well known he is here, but he was a legendary businessman in North America. In the 80s, Chrysler was at the very brink of Chrysler Corporation, the car manufacturer, was at the brink of bankruptcy. And Lee Iacocca took over as CEO and pretty much just engineered a complete, single-handedly, a turnaround for Chrysler. Um, took them from this near disaster to you know the edge of um, greatness and beyond, and they began to sell cars again. Everybody wanted one. And uh, they had uh, Ricardo Montalban do these commercials for them and whatnot. And it was mostly what really caught the attention of people in North America were these very, at that time, creative television commercials that uh, he was behind, Iacocca was behind. Anyhow, the story is that one day Lee Iacocca got on an elevator, very tall man, and there was a man standing in the elevator and looked at him and kept looking at him and then finally said, are you Lee Iacocca? And he says, yes, I am. And he says, oh, man, I love your television commercials. And Lee Iacocca said to him, sir, I could care less what you think about my television commercials. What I want to know is, what kind of car do you drive? (laughs) I think that's what God is actually saying to his church. I could care less what you actually think about what I'm saying. Are you living it out? What kind of life do you live? What kind of faith do you have? How is it embodied? Are you the kind of person that more and more the community around you, maybe it's just a small community, maybe it's just a few people in your neighborhood, but they realize wow, if we don't turn to them, if we don't ask their advice, if we don't seek out what they know, we're really in trouble. I think the world doesn't really care what kind of commercials we run. They want to know what kind of car we drive. And it really begins this living it out in the way that Paul does among these sailors that they get won over and they are finally willing to turn over the the command of the boat in some ways to him. We will not survive the storm unless we do it. I think it begins with this love. I think that Paul throughout this story is demonstrating this profound love for people who have put him in shackles, imprisoned him, sending him off, not listening to him initially. I think that there's this enduring love that this man has for them. And it's the love expressed as service. 
just a willingness to serve these people regardless of how foolish they might be, how indifferent or sometimes hostile, just this heart to serve them because he loves them. I find that uh, as a pastor and as a Christ follower, the thing I'm always asking God for is this renewing in the, in the depths of me of this love that he has for, first, I, I, in some ways myself, that I need to know the love of Christ that has set me free. And, and this love that he has for this broken world. I think that's what Jesus was doing with the Pharisees. Remember in Luke 15, the series of parables that he tells about lost things? There's a lost sheep and there's a lost, or rather there's a lost coin and then lost sheep and then lost son. Was it the other way? Yeah, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Hundred sheep, one goes missing. Ten coins, one goes missing. Two sons, one goes missing. Three parables back to back about lost things. And he tells it because there's a group of leaders, church leaders, who have lost the sense of the mission of God. They're grumbling that Jesus actually likes, loves, spends time with lost people. That he doesn't withdraw, he doesn't show the hostility that they might have shown to him, that he loves them, he's with them. And that's offensive to the religious leaders. And they're muttering, this man even eats with sinners. He has fellowship with them. So Jesus tells them these parables of lost things. And this is how he begins. Suppose one of you lost... You had a hundred sheep and you lost one. You had ten coins, you lost one. You had two sons and you lost two, actually. But two lost sons in that story. But that's quite subversive, isn't it? Suppose one of you. Suppose one of you. He's digging down into... Can they have the heart of God for the people that have yet to know God? Suppose one, have you ever lost anything that really mattered to you? How many parents have had that heart-stopping experience at some point when your children were young and you were at a big department store, you were at a park or something and you lost one of these? Show your hand. I mean, most people who've had children have had that experience. Cheryl and I, it was with Nicola, our youngest, and a couple of times, but one that was absolutely terrifying was we were at this huge beach. Uh, somebody was mentioning to me earlier that, um, that they have a friend in Parksville. And this beautiful large beach in Parksville, we're up and it goes on for miles and miles. When the tide goes out, it goes out forever. I mean, it is just, it must go out nearly a mile. And we're on this huge, huge beach. And um, Nicola was, what, Cheryl, three three years old, and she's playing with some shells and whatnot by the logs on the beach, and we went to join some people to play volleyball. We're just keeping an eye. Every once in a while, we turn around and look, and Nicola's there, and then she's not. We need a doctor. Apparently, we've got a situation back here. It's a 
Father God, we pray right now for what's going on here, and we just pray that you're, you're healing mercy, and uh, God, would you be present there, and would you intervene? Sake your kingdom in your name. And suddenly, Nicola's not there. This huge beach, woods, all forest behind. And my world stopped. I'm looking right, I'm looking left, I'm looking out toward the water, I'm looking in toward the woods. I cannot see Nicola anywhere. What was she wearing? A little pink shirt. And I began to run up and down the beach just randomly. I didn't know what to do. Um, crying out, screaming out. I didn't care what people thought, just at the top of my lungs, Nicola, Nicola. Don't see anybody. I'm, I'm coming up to people. I'm accosting them. Uh, they're complete strangers. Have you seen Nicola? She, she was wearing a little pink thing, a little dark hair, little three-year-old. Have you seen? No, I haven't seen. I, I stop. I take a breath. I pray a prayer. I begin to sort of organize a few people. Okay, you go this way. You go this way. You go this way. I start going up the beach. I'm running. I'm finding out how badly in shape I am, but I'm running with all I've got, crying, Nicola, Nicola. I'm, I'm, I, my heart is almost stopped within me. I'm just gripped with panic. I'm trying to keep calm. I'm trying to keep focused. Nicola, Nicola. Nothing else matters to me at that moment. And then way down, I see a little pink blot. And I begin to sprint at this point. I mean, I'm really finding out how bad a shape I'm in, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to die getting to that little pink spot up in the beach. And as I draw nearer, I can see it's my Nicola, and I just break down in tears of relief as I see her. And I come to her, and I lift her in my arms, and I carry her all the way home. Suppose one of you had something, someone that really mattered to you and you lost it. That's what Jesus is saying to these men. Do you know what God feels toward people that he created, that his son died to redeem? Do you know what is in the heart of God toward the lost? Suppose one of you would you get the heart of God for the lost? This is what the word is. And Jonah doesn't want to have that heart for the lost. He just wants to be bitter and angry and withdraw and hate those who hate him. And Paul's got it. And so he expresses his love to them by just constantly finding fresh ways to serve them. Some very simple ways that our church, as we've begun to grasp this principle that a world or a church that, that stands in um, indifference to or hostility toward the world that would be an indifferent to us or hostile to us. And as we've begun to understand this principle that no, you've got to love those who persecute you, love those who hate you, love those who don't care about you. You've got to get the love of God. Suppose one of you and as more and more we've done that and God stirred it up and, and he's constantly having to remind us and deepen us and strengthen us and refine us in it. But here's a few things that's by way of practicality and this may not um, 
help some of the churches around the world, but I think it's, it's good for the churches in the West. We started a thing called Jumpstart. What we found out in our community is we have the highest incidence of single mothers on welfare in all of our province, a very large province called British Columbia. And in our town, we have the highest incidence of single moms on welfare. And so we began to do some poking around, and we found out that there's two times in the year that are particularly difficult for people in that situation. I mean, the entire year is difficult, but two that are, that are just uh, harrowing. Back to school on Christmas. And back to school when you're supposed to put new clothes on Johnny and Sally and new shoes and get them haircuts and backpacks and send them off with all their new stuff. And all the kids are getting excited. With I mean, I went into one of your stores here, um, Mark and Spencer, and I saw all the, the little costumes for the boys and girls to go back and how many pounds each cost. That is dreadful for the single parents. It's dreadful. Knowing that their little Johnny and little Billy and little Sally are going back in the old stuff that they had last year that doesn't fit anymore. These tattered backpacks, it's just dreadful. And Christmas, whatever, all the middle class and upper middle class families are getting so excited and what, what's going to be under the tree and all the feasts, it is just dreadful. And so we began to ask the question, not what, what would make us feel good, but what would do real good? And we started the thing called Jumpstart, and, and, and we're actually, I have to miss it this year. It kind of breaks my heart. It's happening this Saturday. And we have this thing now subscribed to by hundreds of people in their community. They come into our church. They drive up. If they have a car, we have mechanics all over our parking lot doing several point checks in their car and oil changes and replacing things and all of that. And then they detail the car. They wash it and they clean it. Some of these things are junk buckets. I mean, it's very hard to clean up, you know, 10 years of garbage out of the back seat, but you try. You know, these things at rusty panels and you try to wash it and make it look as... And we just treat these people with dignity. We pull it up to the curb for them. And while they're inside getting all the clothes they need, all the shoes they need, getting haircuts for themselves and their children, where they can go over and get served tea and biscuits. Um, And then as they exit, they get to go in a room and they get to pick a brand new backpack filled with brand new school supplies for them. And they go get in their car that's been washed. And we just bless them. You should see, you do that year after year, what kind of reputation you get in the town. Last year we had floods in our town that um, destroyed several homes. Uh, It was a a national emergency. Do you know who they phoned first? Our church. Can you help? And we found the person who had the least amount of money to rebuild their home and we rebuilt it for them. Do you know what kind of reputation you get in a community? When you begin to love this community that really has not shown much interest in who you are and sometimes been openly hostile to who you are and you just in love begin to serve them. 
we found out three years ago that um, there's many meals provided for the homeless, huge homeless pop- population in our community. And many meals are supplied. But the one day of the year that there's no meal for the homeless is Christmas Day. No room in the inn that day. And so we found that out and we uh, began to rent. And then when they found out what we're doing, they just gave it to us. The native gym in the middle of town. And we asked for donations. And we will actually happily work with anybody in the community. We have a number of non-Christians show up to donate things and to help out and serve this meal. Last year, I think we served 600 people Christmas dinner. Do you know what kind of reputation you will get in the community if you will say, no strings attached, we're not, you don't have to listen to us preach the gospel because we're going to live the gospel for you. We're going to be embodiment of the kingdom of the Christ whom I, uh, whose I am and who I love and who I serve. We're going to be an embodiment of, here, take food, Paul says. Take courage. Take a backpack. It's amazing what God will do with the simple acts of the faithful. If you'll just let God open your heart, suppose one of you had someone that really mattered to you and you lost them. Get God's heart for that. Open your heart. And just in simple acts as we see in here, serve And at some point, they might just hand you the boat. Father God, I thank you so much that this gospel that is so deep, it's so rich, it's so full is in some ways so simple that as it it takes hold of us and we take hold of it well as Jesus said um, to his disciples two things that I would have you do as this gospel grips you would you fish for men and would you feed my sheep would you go out and live it out in such a way that people are drawn in pulled toward it irresistibly And would you bless those who come in that they would be transformed and they would be renewed and they would grow. They'd become more like me. So God, I pray that um, we wouldn't make it more complicated than it is. That you just allow, we would allow the love that you have first for us so we're liberated we don't have to prove anything and the love you have for this broken dying world to invade us then in love for Julius the centurion and for the pagan sailors and for the others on board who we told if you do this you'll get into this trouble but, but now that they've in this trouble we'd say well now take courage because as the church on this earth does the work of God more and more get drawn up into it. And so, Father God, I pray that, that, that we would just walk out, live out these simple acts of service to a world that in many ways doesn't care and oftentimes is just openly
belligerent. But more and more we'd experience as we, we love this world you love with that kind of simple acts of servanthood, that more and more they might just say, the only way we can survive this storm is if those Christians are leading the way. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.